Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 52, Sir Time a Charm. So when we last stopped, Alexandria fell for the second time, and the symbolic church of St. Mark on its eastern outskirts was burning. To wrap up the fall of Alexandria, a couple of important things happened that we need to address. First, the Melkite patriarch escaped to Constantinople during the sack of the city and would not come back. It would be another 60 years or so until a replacement is ordained. So for a while, there will be only one patriarch for Egypt, and it would be the Coptic one. The impact of the absence of the Melkite patriarch would be minimal so. The power and the influence of the Melkite church lay in the hands of its aristocratic elite, not its clergy, so they would be okay. Second, the dynamic between Pope Benjamin Shinuda the Ducks and Abram the Laos, specifically in regards to the Church of St. Mark, is worth telling. As expected, Shinuda the Ducks stuck close to Amr during the siege of Alexandria, and as a duke slash governor, he had a sizable amount of men who answered to him. Most of them, if not all, were Christians. When the church was burning, one of these men, a captain of a ship, jumped over the walls and saved the relics of St. Mark. Then he secretly hid it in the ship while everyone was busy plundering and burning the rest of the city. It seems that his motivation was to try and sell it later on, as he kept the fact that he had it a secret. The history of the patriarchs, where the snippet of history comes from, then goes on a long tangent where St. Mark appears to the Pope in a dream, and the ship of the Duke refuses to move from its spot, essentially forcing the captain of the ship to tell Shenouda about the relic. But regardless of how and why it happened, once the captain of the ship told Shenouda about the relics, to quote our source, they went in haste, and made known to the father Benjamin exactly what had taken place. So he mounted his horse at once, and took with him a body of the clergy, and came to the duke, and related to him the dream which he had seen that night. And thereupon they all said, Truly this is the head of the holy Mark the evangelist. And as soon as the patriarch came to the ship and took the pure head, the ship was released. It got under sail at once and departed in a straight course. 
see he and the duke and all the people knew the truth of the story, and bore witness to this miracle and glorified God. After the miracle, Shinoda gave the patriarch some money to rebuild the church and a shrine in it for St. Mark. It seems so that the project was put on hold for a while, and the money was directed towards renovating and building the monasteries around Alexandria, where the Miaphysite sentiments were much stronger than in the city. It will be another 50 years and two more patriarchs to finally build the church of St. Mark. Now, if you missed it, here we have a powerful Christian official, Shenouda, assisting Amr in sacking a Christian city, Alexandria. At the least, he provided logistical support to the operation, if not directly participated with his men in the sack. In the very same time, he uses the opportunity to save an important relic and donate a sum of money to rebuild a church that was burnt. He is one that hates the Christians, Berjan of Nico, but also a believing duke in the history of the patriarchs. In a way, Shinoda sums up the historical complexity of the conquest. He was the reason Egypt seamlessly transitioned under the caliphate, but in the very same time, also one of the reasons that Christianity survived. He disappears from the historical record afterward, but he probably died a Christian, as during his lifetime there was no practical reasons to convert to Islam. His descendants so, they had a tough choice to make. The position of duke would lose relevance quickly, and then become exclusively for Arab Muslims. It was they who had to choose between assimilating to the new regime or lose their influence. For his part, Pope Benjamin would stay on the throne of St. Mark until 662 AD, i.e. for more than 15 years under uncontested Islamic rule. His career is neatly divided to roughly one-third under Persian rule, one-third in exile during Roman rule, and the last third under the Arabs. Because of the building program of the monasteries after the conquest and his long exile with the monks, Pope Benjamin is remembered very positively in the records we have surviving. Perhaps nothing speaks louder to his legacy than a painting from the 13th centuries where he stands in the company of a very select group of patriarchs, St. Mark, Athanasius, Severus, Dioscorus, Theophilus, and Peter, the last martyr. We will go back to Pope Benjamin in a bit, when it comes time to speak about his successor. But for the last 15 years of his reign, he built churches, monasteries, put down cannons, and worked tirelessly to win back those who have left to the Melkite church. The other thing that is important to go through before wrapping up the fall of Alexandria is the fate of the relics of St. Mark. Nowadays, relics are not really that important and with little practical use. So for many, 
it can be hard to imagine their importance in the medieval world. In the 7th century and beyond, the position of relics had major implications in the interactions between churches, nations, and people. Wars literally started and ended over the recovery of relics. Whoever held the relics of St. Mark had a stronger claim on the apostolic succession from the saint. An apostolic succession, in turn, lends legitimacy and claim to orthodoxy over other churches. So the Coptic church holding the relics of St. Mark gave it a tremendous edge over the Milkite church. In a way, it allowed the Coptic hierarchy to claim an unbroken link to St. Mark, as opposed to the Milkite church, who according to the polemic of the time, was a different church built on a theological innovation. But here is the thing. The history of the patriarch writer of these events, a certain George the Archdeacon, writing around 700 AD, goes out of his way to specifically mention that it was only the head that was saved, not everything that was originally in the church before burning. And the head would end up being used on a semi-consistent basis in the ceremonies to elevate the new patriarchs, to emphasize those apostolic succession links. Yet, somehow, by the 9th century, the head would become full relics again, and the Venetians would steal it from Alexandria and build an impressive cathedral around it in Venice that still draws tourists to this day. And to further muddy the picture, the head of St. Mark continued to be used in the consecration of the new patriarchs even after the Venetians supposedly stole the relics. We will eventually get to that 9th century episode and what exactly happened there. But the point for now is to lay the groundwork for the importance of relic in medieval Egypt. With those couple of tangents out of the way, we can safely say to the Romans goodbye forever and turn our attention fully to Medina. If you remember, Ahmed Malas was brought back to Egypt with the promise to get the governorship back if he was able to get rid of the Romans, which he had just successfully achieved. So, the Caliph Osman is going to keep his word and keep him, right? No, not really. Osman, the clever Caliph that he is, told Amr that he can be the Emir of Masr if he wants to. But the former governor, Abdullah ibn Sa'd, would be responsible for all the finances, collecting the revenue, and paying the soldiers. In other words, Amr can have the title, but Abdullah gets to keep the money. The general obviously refused. As he put it, I would be like a man holding a cow by the horns, while another milked her. So, he left Egypt in disgust for Abdullah and Osman, and went over to Muawiyah in Syria, who provided Amr with a comfortable retirement and future opportunities if the right cards fell into place. Those cards would indeed fall into place. So Amr would eventually come back to Egypt as its emir and virtual king for the final time, 
and die in the lands that he conquered. But that would be in another decade or so from now, and in the context of the first civil war of the Caliphate, which truly absorb, we must briefly go over and how the new Arab community in Egypt organized itself as Jean de Masr, or the soldiers of Egypt. Basically, an independent group which would walk the line between Egyptian and Arab, who would first and foremost defend their privilege as members of the Duane and their bay coming from the revenue of Egypt. In this defense, they will fight the central government of the Caliphate, killing the Caliph, then turn around and fight on their behalf to suppress the revolts of the native Egyptians, and finally, eventually join in these revolts themselves, completing a full circle. When they first settled in Egypt, they were basically the army that came with Amr, their relatives and associates from the same tribes. In that community, four offices eventually developed that ran its affair. Sahib al-Salah, the overseer of prayers, also known as the Emir, basically the governor of Egypt appointed by the Caliph who led the Friday prayers. In addition to this symbolic act, the governor served as the military and civil chief of the province and the link between the Caliph and its people. He rarely left Fustat, and usually, also not always, he was an outsider, loyal to the Caliph above all else. Initially, the governor was also in charge of the revenue and the supreme legal authority. But eventually Caliphs figured out that this was too much power in one man's hand, and carved out the next two offices, Sahib al-Kharaj, the financial officer, and the Qadi, literally, a judge. Also, the holder eventually functioned like a scholar in Islamic law, rather than a civil judge. The lines between civil and religious authority were essentially non-existent in the caliphate. The last office of the four was Sahib al-Shurta, or the chief of police. This was almost always an insider, and the office ran in one family for close to 200 years. These guys through their connection and knowledge of the land, would be the conduit that Jund Masr organized around and defended their rights. In those early years of the Caliphate, it was quite common for Sahib al-Shurta to hold more actual power than whoever the Caliph appointed. Also, smart governors were keen to develop a good working relationship with these guys. Those offices formed the core of the bureaucracy of the caliphate. Christian dukes and bigargs would still be around for another 50 years or so, but the duke office would eventually turn into something resembling a secretary or a translator, and the bigargs would devolve into strictly record keepers and tax collectors, with little influence or power beyond that. At any rate, that was the world the governor Abdullah was building over the next 10 years, with consistent expansion to the west and learning from his experience with Alexandria, a respectable navy. But those military expeditions and navies cost money, not to mention a small unexpected money to go to Medina as well. And to top that off, more Arabs were arriving each day to Fustat 
expecting a pension like their brothers who arrived earlier. These financial pressures all came to a head in January 656, when Abdullah left Egypt to visit the Caliph in Medina. In his absence, a certain Muhammad ibn Abi Hudayfa, one of the original conqueror under Amr, organized a group of his fellow soldiers and intended to go to Medina and request that Osman remove the unpopular governor. 400 of them then made their way to Medina and met with the Caliph Osman. In the same time, the governor Abdullah had just finished his business in Medina and left just before they arrived with the blessing of the Caliph and essentially an extension of his governorship. So, when the protesters met Osman, the matter of their protest, the governor, was already decided on. Nonetheless, the caliph still listened to them and nodded all the way through their complaints. Further, he actually promised them that he will be happy to make the changes that they requested and treated them with, with all kind of honors and respect. Satisfied at the result of the meeting, the group that came from Egypt backed up and made their way back, expecting the removal of the governor shortly. Osman had no plans to remove the governor so, and as far as he was concerned, these guys had no right to tell him how to run his empire. Ignoring them was not good enough. They had to be made an example for anyone else who might have the same ideas. So, as soon as they left, he sent a messenger to the governor, who was halfway between Medina and Egypt in modern Aqaba on the borders of Sinai, to execute them and make them an example. Unfortunately for Osman, the soldier intercepted the message and found out that the caliph had just betrayed them and ordered their execution. Filled with rage, they went back to Medina, laid a siege on his house, and eventually killed the caliph while he was reading the Quran. Osman's centralization of power was not very popular as he usually did it by promoting his own family members to important position. Our governor in Egypt, for example, was considered his foster brother. So no one in Medina was particularly outraged at his death, and many saw his death as an opportunity to improve their status. As Hugh Kennedy puts it in his The Prophet and the Age of the Caliphate book, quote, Osman was killed because he was determined to assert the control of the traditional Qureshi elite over the Islamic State, even if this meant trampling on the rights and the privileges of many early Muslims. He saw the need for central control. He saw that the Umayyad clan had the experience and the ability to undertake it, but he failed to make allowances for the interests of others who had different but equally strong claims to enjoy the fruits of the conquest. Now, this Umayyad clan is important. Muawiyah in Syria was part of it, as well as many influential men of the Caliphate. It would be they who would form the next great chapter of the Caliphate. But for now, again, the clear-cut candidate to replace the Caliph was Ali the son-in-law of the Prophet. 
from the get-go so. Ali seemed to be facing opponents from every side. First, there was the Qureshi elite around Medina, who gathered around the charismatic figure of Aisha, a widow of the Prophet and the daughter of the first caliph, Abu Bakr. Then, there was Muawiyah in Syria, and a couple of individuals in Egypt who looked at the death of Osman and saw nothing but opportunity. I will get to the Pacifics in Egypt in a bit, but Muawiyah was sent the blood-stained shirt of Osman, and he took it upon himself to avenge the caliph. Now, Ali had nothing to do with the dust, but that did not stop Muawiyah from pressuring him to kill the protesters from Egypt, and thus essentially alienate John de Mastre, the soldiers of Egypt, from his rule. So things escalated quickly, and before you know it, we had the first civil war of the caliphate on our hand, known as the first fitna of Islam, roughly translated as sedition. Aisha and her group broke away first, and used tensions in Iraq, specifically in Kufa, between the original conquerors and the later arrival, as a way to recruit their army. The original conquerors, who received the most pay from the Diwan and held the best lands, fought anyone who attempted to reduce their privilege. Thus, they were very happy to see Osman go. They ideologically opposed the Caliph by referencing the Quran, and they became known as Quran, or readers of the Quran. But as you would expect, they were not very popular with new arrivals and the tribal leaders, who felt that the revenue should be shared more equally. So, Aisha's group recruited men who opposed the Quran to be in their army, with the promise that once Ali is defeated, the Quran would lose their privilege. Ali, worried that whatever manpower he had in Medina was not enough to face Aisha, also traveled to Iraq and recruited the Quran to be in his army, with a promise to guarantee their status. The same kind of dynamic was also happening in Egypt, also it was entirely driven by the settlers rather than outsiders. Upon the death of the Caliph, Muhammad ibn Abu Hudayfa, the leader of the protesters, took charge of the province and its revenue. But as soon as he did that, some Brosman slash Medina settlers immediately took issue with Abu Hudayfa, and led by a certain Al-Kindi, rose up against his de facto rule of Egypt. A poorly documented civil war then took place inside Egypt among the Arabs, where it ended up in a stalemate. Abu Hudayfa and those who killed Osman controlled Fustat and the fortress of Babylon, while Al-Kindi and his group controlled the rest of Egypt. Eventually, the Syrians got involved, and Muawiyah, building his case to avenge Osman, captured and killed Abu Hudayfa and his supporters. He then built some bridges with Al-Kindi, and appointed him Sahib al-Shurta, a position that his descendants will keep for the next 200 years or so. Appointing an emir would have meant direct conflict with Ali, which Muawiyah was not ready for yet. So, he deferred the appointment to the caliph, yet comfortable that Al-Kindi would direct Egypt's resources to his side when the time is right. Also, 
he made it very clear that he would not accept Ali as a caliph or his governor as legitimate until the murder of Osman is avenged. Which sounded nice, but since Muawiyah personally killed the rebels in Egypt, practically it was unclear what Muawiyah wanted it. In the meantime, the fighting in Iraq, which is much better documented, took a very bloody turn. Basically, Ali, as the legitimate caliph, and was an economic appeal to the military elite of Kufa, managed to gather a large army and move an Aisha supporters, now based in Basra in Iraq. A legendary and a very bloody battle then took place, the Battle of the Camel, as the widow of the Prophet sat on a camel on the sick of the fighting. Her main partners in the rebellions were all killed, along with most of their army. And Aisha was captured alive and sent for house arrest in Medina. Ali, with this victory, has successfully survived his first test. But still, Muawiyah was waiting in the wings, gathering men and supplies to confront the caliph under the pretext of avenging Osman. In Egypt, the first governor that Ali sent saw the situation on the ground and how much Muawiyah's influence was and basically defected the Syrian governor in all but name. Ali caught wind of the betrayal sir, and dismissed him for a more loyal governor. But the new governor did not even make it to Egypt, dying on the way to the province. The third governor was none other than the son of the first caliph, Abu Bakr. A well-known and influential figure in the world of Islamic government, he also saw the situation on the ground and got worried about the loyalty of the soldiers to the caliph. But rather than defect to Muawiyah, he decided to execute anyone who even had any kind of relations with the governor of Syria. His rule was very heavy-handed even by the standards of the day, and apparently his justice included imprisoning the families of the children of the Arab settlers and burning their houses when he could not get to them. This ultimately led to even more people pledging their support to Muawiyah and asking him to intervene in Egypt. And you know who liked the sound of that? Yep, our old buddy Amr ibn al-As, who was basically chomping at the bit at this point. Muawiyah gave Amr some Syrian soldiers and told him to go take back his conquered land. Now, for the third time, Amr came to Egypt as a conqueror. Abu Bakr's son gathered all the men that he could and decided to meet Amr in an open battle, very close to where Amr first defeated the Romans in Heliopolis. There was no clever tactics, maneuvers, or tricks of Amr's sleeves this time. This was two armies meeting head to head and he was either going to kill Abu Bakr's son or be killed himself. After a bloody battle, Amr came out victorious. The old caliph's son was captured alive and Al-Kindi, Sahib al-Shorta appointed by Muawiyah, apparently stuffed the poor guy body in a dead donkey's bodily cavity and burned both of them. He did not order some random soldier to do it either. Nope. 
the patriarch of the most powerful family in Egypt for the next 200 years personally did it. It seems that Amr was not particularly bothered by it either, as he kept the kindi on as Sahib Shorta and eventually promoted him to lead military expeditions. But big picture wise, Muawiyah had just cleaved Egypt from Ali's control and Ali, for his part, had just finished dealing with Aisha and her rebellion. The two men were quickly coming into conflict that would transform the caliph from a tribal leader into a warrior king and give rise to the Umayyad Caliphate and in the process create the Sunni and Shia sects of Islam. But we will leave that for next week. For now, Amr ibn al-As had become the Emir of Masra again. He first entered the land of the Nile in 639 AD. And now, 20 years later, in late 658, he did it again. And this time, he would not let it go or share any of its revenue. And if Muawiyah dared to ask for money, well, Amr made it very clear that he is happy to defect to Ali. He wouldn't so. Muawiyah was happy to let Amr keep Egypt. He had bigger plans. Now, in all this protracted conflict, basically a non-stop on and off war over the last 60 years, Egypt's resources, mainly grain, which can usually support its 3 to 5 million inhabitants and have a surplus, became seriously strained. Forced labor, especially during the naval buildup in Osman's reign, became endemic. Farmers started to repeat the same playbook from the Roman 2nd century crisis and essentially abandoned their land rather than constantly having to rebuild from the, from the damage of wars and providing ad hoc supplies to the marching armies. Alexandria, after its fall from last week, was entering into a terminal phase, at least trade and commercial activity-wise. The land of the gods an arms jewel of conquests, were losing its value quick, and after his death, it would eventually become an irrelevant political attachment to Syria. And even its revenue, it would be nothing but a boar's man Iraq. It was finally his so, and no one would take it from him. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next week. <laughs>